Thanks, y'all. It's a joy to get to be with you tonight. And uh, Phil has asked me the last couple times to come and teach and for scheduling stuff. It hasn't worked out. So I'm super, super glad that he kept at it and that I get to be here tonight with y'all. I know this is the second week that y'all are studying into the parables and that Brandy taught last week. And she did an excellent job. I got to listen to that online and it was wonderful to hear her teach. Uh, the parables, I think, can be challenging sometimes, hard for us to kind of figure out what Jesus was talking about, and we're not alone in that. That was how they were experienced, actually, when Jesus actually spoke the parables. He, Jesus, is the consummate storyteller. He was able to captivate a, a crowd with the stories that he told, but his purpose was not to entertain. He didn't seek to tell stories that would hold attention. In fact, people were often turning the other direction when they would hear stories that he told. His purpose was to transform hearts and lives. And the parables still have the same purpose for us in our lives. Um, have you ever wondered, though, has this been a thought that's crossed your mind before? It certainly crossed the disciples' mind. Dude, net it out. Read the room, okay? Why so obtuse with what you're trying to tell us? Like, just be direct and say what you're trying to say. And I want to point out something that's kind of interesting that'll give you a little idea into why maybe that isn't the best way, even though I'm going to kind of do it tonight, is to be direct. So um, the Queen of England died in the last six weeks or so. Is that about right, y'all? Um, and the service for the queen was televised worldwide. And how many people, just guessing, do you think watched the queen's funeral, her funeral service? Any ideas? Millions is good, but not even close. Four billion, with a B, people in our world watched the queen's funeral. Did any of y'all watch it? I'm going to look out there and see. I know, right? <laughs> I didn't. So you did. That's cool. Okay. So apparently she very much scripted how she wanted things done at her funeral, which I totally respect as someone who wrote the service for my wedding at 24 and directed a person who was officiating to do what I said. But <laughs> what? Um, she had this whole service planned out. And part of what she wanted said was what Jesus said to um, Martha when she comes running out to meet him after the death of Lazarus. And he looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will not die, but live even though they die. Do you believe this? Okay, those words, y'all, were heard by four billion people. And to my knowledge, revival has not broken out because of it. Direct teaching, very direct. You can't escape these words. Really good teaching always has a question afterwards too. Do you believe this? And yet, I, I mean, I really don't know of anybody that's like, hey, I just gave my life to Jesus because I saw Queen Elizabeth's funeral. So maybe direct teaching doesn't penetrate our hearts. Maybe parables, a story, is actually a better way to sneak in to get at our hearts. I think that's exactly why Jesus did what he did. He knows that it's more effective than didactic, linear pointed directional teaching. So he would tell these stories. Think about in the Old Testament. Was, okay, so here's David. 
this is my retelling of the story, um, sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. By the way, that's where women bathed. Bathsheba was not doing something illicit and improper by doing what she was doing. She's just taking her bath. David, eyeline towards the rooftop, sees her, says, I want her. Takes her as his own, has her husband killed in battle so he can have Bathsheba for himself. Okay, Nathan, his friend, comes to him, prophet, very trusted. And he doesn't come in and say, David, seriously, dude, what have you done? Instead, he says, hey, I want to tell you a story about this guy. There was this guy and he had a whole bunch of sheep and cattle. But when this famous guy was coming to town and he had to get a, make a dinner, he went to this other man and took from him his only cherished sheep to have for the banquet. What do you think of that? And David's all like, he should be killed. That's horrible. He should not do that. And then Nathan turns around and says, the man is you. And click, click, click into David's head. He sees what he's done. He sees it and he says, I have sinned. I've done the wrong thing. A man with that much power immediately becomes a humbled person and a story is what actually draws him in. And that is why parables actually do what they do. They open up our hearts. Even the disciples were, you know, they were uncomfortable with what he was doing. And so they asked him in Mark 4, it says those who were close to him along with the 12 asked about the stories. And he told them, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. But to those who can't see it yet, everything comes in stories, creating readiness, nudging them towards receptive insight. These are people whose eyes are open, but they don't see a thing, whose ears are open, but they don't understand a word, who avoid making an about face and getting forgiven. So he's helping the disciples see these stories create readiness so that the gospel, the truth can be embraced. If that's true, though, that we need stories to help us do that, then parables tell us something about our natural willingness to hear, that we have kind of a bent towards pushing back against directional truth, that it's hard for us, that we might posture ourselves as willing to listen, but like we just sang inside, maybe there's a deeper reality that we actually don't want to listen or hear, and that's okay. God's not, um, doesn't see that as problematic. Jesus said, let me just take a different role with you because his goal in parables and his goal for us tonight is to cultivate hearts that listen. That's what he longs for in each one of us is to cultivate our hearts so that we would have the willingness and the want to, to hear and to respond. The Bible mentions ears. This is, you know, like if you're going to be on Jeopardy, here you go. 56 times, listening 87 times, and hearing a thousand plus times. Obviously, hearing, listening, ears, all very, very important for us. We want to have not just ears on our heads, but actually ears on our hearts that listen and receive. So tonight, we're going to hear the parable of the sower and the four soils and look at what possibly God might have for us. This is what's called a double triadic parable. 
So parables can, can be dyadic where there's two things happening, like the merchant and the pearl, that's two, right? Or three things, triadic, where that would be like the prodigal son, the father, the elder son, the prodigal son, three things, triadic. What's interesting about the sower and the soils is it's double triadic in that there's the sower, there's the fruitful and the unfruitful, and then there's three more underneath the unfruitful. So two levels of a triadic parable. Again, if there's a quiz coming up, now you've got the answers to it. This parable is told in all four synoptic gospels, which means Matthew, Mark, Luke, or what's called the synoptic um, sin, like together, put together, like synthesize, optic, to see these three gospels are seen together and they have a linear progression. John is a different deal. You can tell by the beginning of John, there's no genealogies. There's, you know, he jumps into a very abstract, interesting, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, concept about um, Jesus' birth. Instead of telling it, John approaches it differently. There aren't any of these parables in the gospel of John. Intriguing, right? John's purpose was was different. He gave more weight to these long discourses of things that Jesus was, would say that were way more theological and directional than the parables were. So um, this parable, though, it's in all three. So let me read Matthew 13, 1 through 8, and then we'll talk about it. That same day, I'll talk to you about that in just a second, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." All right, let me point out a couple of things to you. This day where it comes right after what happens in Matthew 12, which was the busiest day in Jesus's recorded ministry. More things happened in this day when he started telling this parable than in any other day recorded in scripture. Um, not only were the crowds gathering, he was healing, he was reframing the Sabbath, he was ref- his his family was literally following him, wanting to talk to him. He was reframing what family looked like. The opposition were, was growing. The plot to kill Jesus. This is the day that the Pharisees started making their plans towards how can we get rid of him. So it is a heavy duty day. And then we get this really weighty parable from him. I also want to point out something about his posture. And, and Matthew says it two times. He sat He went out and he sat by the lake and then he got in the boat and he sat in the boat while everybody else stood on the shore. And then he told this story. The posture of sitting is not the posture of power. It is the posture of learning. And he, unlike rabbis, positioned themselves standing like we are tonight with everybody else seated. Jesus reversed that. 
It is such a beautiful picture of incarnation at that moment that Jesus would sit down on level with people to say, I want to tell you these things so that you can hear them, so that you can receive them. He used common subject matter and they all grew their own fruits and vegetables. They knew what farming was about. He probably wouldn't use the same kind of a context for us because we don't know that much about what's going on. After the confusion, I'm sure the disciples were, they were actually, actually looking around thinking people don't really understand. So they asked Jesus, why do you do this? And then he said, let me explain the parable. He said, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. When the one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since it has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. It produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. All right, so he's given us the explanation now, and we're going to break that down a little bit to see what it looks like in us, in our actual lived-in lives that we're in right now. We want to look and observe a few things about what he was saying. Interesting first about the sower. He doesn't say who the sower is. He never says the sower is this person. The sower, though, is thought to be either God, Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit, or us, sowing seeds amongst people. What's also interesting about the sower is that the sower doesn't get out and find the ground that is the good soil and just puts the seeds systematically into the ground, into the places where it's going to grow. Instead, he like flings it out over the ground where there's where there's places it's not going to go, where there's places it's going to die off and it won't. It's an interesting way of sowing, isn't it? It's a picture of grace, the extravagant goodness of God that he flings himself out into the world for anyone who wants to receive him. This giving extravagantly is a picture of God that's built into the sower. It's almost wasteful that you would have this limited number of seeds perhaps and then only and let them go in places where you know nothing's going to happen. It doesn't seem wise, does it? It actually is beautiful. It's beautiful because that's the grace that God pours out. It's a picture. The seed, he says, then, is the message. The message is the word who is Jesus. The seed is Jesus, Jesus himself. That's why John says in the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh. In verse 19, it says that the message about the kingdom, the message is Jesus. The word is Jesus. The seed is Jesus. In Titus 3, 4 through 8, it says this to describe the same thing, but in um, 
beautiful language. When the kindness and love of God appeared, our Savior, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy, He saved us by the washing of His Holy Spirit. If Jesus has not been presented to you as kindness and love, you haven't heard the true message. That's who he is. When the kindness and love of God appeared, our Savior Jesus, that's who he is. That's the seed that's been sown. The soils is a picture of our hearts clearly describes that again in verse 19 that he says that it's our hearts. But remember this, these aren't static like snapshot pictures of our hearts where we see just this is your heart, boom, period, end of story. Hearts change. That's his goal is our transformation. So he doesn't say this is the picture, end of story. He says, here is a progression of what it means to come into the kingdom of faith. And then he talks about three kinds of soil where the seed isn't able to flourish. The first one is the path. It's good. A path is actually a good thing, right? It's good for walking. It's not great for growing because it's been hardened and pressed down. And then he says that even though it's received with joy, birds who are a picture of Satan in scripture, I don't, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I have birds. I love my birds. I like birds, right? I know people think they're not real. I like the birds, right? But the birds in the parable are a picture of Satan. So we'll just go with that. And so they steal up, they come and take it away. And honestly, that's what the enemy of our hearts wants to do. I mean, Jesus told us clearly, John 10, 10, kill, steal, destroy. That's what this looks like in these three situations, killing, stealing, destroying. That's what the enemy does. How does he do it? He comes in with lies, takes truth, and then twists it into a lie. Romans 1 says we exchange truth for lies, that there's a false narrative that we start to believe about who God is and who we are, and then joy gets sucked out of our lives. That is exactly what happens. At the very beginning in Genesis 3, what what does the evil one say? Surely God didn't say, twisting the truth into a lie. And God even points it out when he asks the question, who told you? Who told you? There's someone who tells us what isn't true about God or ourselves. In the desert, when Jesus is out in the wilderness, that's the same way Satan comes at him. It's what the Pharisees do with God's word. They heap heavy burdens on people's shoulder. They literally weaponize the word of God and it breaks hearts. Has that happened to you? Has God's word been used to shame or subject you to some sort of belittling? That isn't God's purpose. He isn't the God who wants to do that. That's the enemy's purpose. The rocky ground, that's when the joy and the trouble and persecution come in. I kind of think that's what false gospels do to us. Like the health and wealth gospel that believing we're all supposed to be healthy. And then when you get sick, what do you do with that? 
or wealthy, and then when you struggle to make ends meet, does God somehow not pleased with me? It's one of the most destructive gospels because it's a lie. It's a false gospel. It is rocky ground that where his, his word can't take root. Other lies that might come in are things like this. God won't give you more than you can handle. (laughs) My husband David got cancer right after our fourth child was born. We had a six-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a five-month-old. If I had believed that God would not give me more than I could handle, I would have run screaming. But I actually believed God was giving me more than I could handle, and he always does because he wants to handle it with me and for me. It's a lie. God will give us more than we can handle. Do you think the disciples would say, look, God means for you to be healthy and wealthy. Didn't really work out for me. I got crucified upside down, but good luck for that for you, right? I don't think so. Again, the thorny ground. Then the last one about the thorny ground that he points out is he says about worries and wealth. Now, let me just say something. Neither one of those things are bad. Worries aren't bad. Wealth isn't bad. It is not a sin to worry. Maybe you've been told it's a sin and that you should repent of that. When in reality, he actually tells us to cast all of those worries upon him because the assumption is, hey, we're going to worry. Jesus said, in this life, you will have many troubles. In the revised version of the NIV, they took the word many out and I like it much better. You'll just have some troubles. Let's go with that instead of many. And then what does he say? But be encouraged because I've overcome them all. Be encouraged. Okay, so the word Worries and the wealth aren't bad. They just turn into that choking us out. Do you know what Virginia creeper is? It's this really pretty ivy vine. But man, if it gets in around your daylilies at our house, it will choke them out. If it's over on the side of the house, it's super pretty until it grows up the side of the house and it creates a problem on the side of the house. That's what happens in our thoughts and with our things and our heads in our hands, any of those things can become thorny for us. Then he describes the good soil, the one who listens, understands, and then grows. So the question, as we wrap up tonight, that we want to ask ourselves is, how is my hearing? Now, because I'm approaching my 61st birthday, these are things I ask about. How is my hearing? Let me take that little online test and just see if I'm still doing okay or not, because at some point I expect it not to go. He wants to know how our hearts are hearing. How is my hearing of God? There's a couple of things I just want to leave with you to cultivate a heart that listens Take a posture of listening. James 1.19 says to be quick to listen. That means we have to be on the alert, that we are training ourselves to pay attention and look for God's voice in and, and through amongst us. Quick, are we have a dog who has, she is the most amazing hearing. She can be dead asleep and know that one of the other dogs is going to heave. And then she begins to bark her shrill little brains out at us because she can hear, she is on alert for somebody else doing something wrong. She's really on alert for that. We can be quick to listen, on alert. We can ask God to speak to us. He will. 
He delights in revealing himself through the word as we immerse ourselves in it and through his spirit as he speaks to us. We have to take time, time with him, and then time to realize that growth is a process. And it's, if, you, if anybody gardens, you know it's a long process. If we were farmers, we would know we have to be willing to examine the false narratives that we've actually accepted as truth. When I'm really struggling with something, a really good question for me is, what is the false narrative I'm believing? And what is the gospel truth in response to that? And what do you want me to do, God? How do you want me to move out of these? These are all inward things to do. There's one outward thing, and that's to so gen- generously be God's love and kindness everywhere you are. Be God's love and kindness to the people around you. Where is your heart today? I want to, rem- to um, finish, though, with this really important reminder. These are not, it's either A, B, C, or D. You either have a good soil or you're one of these other three. It can be a combo platter. You have a heart of good soil, but today it's really thorny in your heart. Or I can have a heart of good soil, but it's gotten a bit hardened and beat down. Something was breaking in me when we were singing, Lord, have mercy on me. That's the cry of a heart that wants more of him. When Jesus told this parable, he was not dividing people into four groups. He was inviting all people to receive the beautiful, good seed that is him and to flourish in the life that he's created for us. Would you pray with me? God, we long to be people that are quick to listen. We long to be people who hear and respond. Would you, God, come and till the soil of our hearts? Would you push aside the rocks and the thorns? Would you loosen the hardened soil Would you turn it over so that the fresh earth, the beautiful places receive your word and flourish into people, men and women who are sowing seeds of kindness and love in this world. We thank you, Jesus, that this is your good work and that you are faithful to complete it. We pray in your name, amen.